The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Total Career Success with Ken and Cheryl Dawson. The mission of this radio show is to enable every listener to achieve their career aspirations and advance their careers, to achieve their potential, and meet their financial goals. Now, here are your hosts, Ken and Cheryl Dawson. Welcome. Ken and Cheryl here with Dr. Mark Taylor. He's with Columbia University and author of Crisis on Campus, A Bold Plan for Reforming Our Colleges and Universities. Well, with the cost of higher education skyrocketing, global competition, declining funding, and the rise in the demand for online education, it is clear that colleges and universities must remake themselves to provide an adequate and cost-effective education. Our guest today has proposed a radical change in the way higher education is structured and delivered. While academia uh, resists his proposals, his thinking is based on sound research innovative analysis, and a sense of urgency for the survival of our educational system. Listen in for some groundbreaking recommendations. Before we begin, I just want to remind everyone of our seven free videos for you, our listeners, that will help you get a better job, better pay, and a better life. To access these free videos, simply go to www.betterjobbetterlife.com. Now to introduce our guest today, Mark Taylor is Chair of the Department of Religion at Columbia University, Professor of Philosophy of Religion at Union Theological Seminary, and Professor Emeritus of Humanities at Williams College. His many awards include a Guggenheim Fellowship and a Carnegie Foundation National Professor of the Year Award. He is a frequent contributor to the op-ed page of the New York Times and has also written for the uh, Los Angeles Times. His new book is Crisis on Campus, A Bold Plan for Reforming Our Colleges and Universities. Welcome, Mark. We're honored to have you with us today. Well, it's a delight to be here. Tell us a little about your career in education. It certainly um, sounds by the many uh, positions that you hold that's very accomplished, and then why you've decided to write this controversial book. Well, I grew up in a, an academic family. My, my mother and father were high school teachers. My father taught science. My mother taught literature. And I suppose that in our family, uh, the school was the, the church in many ways. Um, when it came time for college, I went to Wesleyan University in Connecticut. And it was I started college in 1964, graduated in 1968, a very t- interesting time to be at college. I majored in religion largely because of the influence of an undergraduate professor who was quite close to Martin Luther King. And Wesleyan was sort of in the eye of the storm of the social, um, uh, the civil rights movement, and yeah. then subsequently the uh, anti-war movement. And then went on to Harvard and got a doctorate in um, religion, and uh, eventually a doctorate in philosophy from the University of Copenhagen. And started teaching at Williams College uh, when I was 27. Taught there for over 30 years. Um, Williams is a wonderful small liberal arts college, and uh, came to Columbia about four years ago to. Uh, 
try to uh, reconfigure the graduate program in religion here, undergraduate and graduate program here in religion. Why did I do it? Believe me, there are days I ask myself that question. Um, you know, Mark, uh, for... as we mentioned uh, to you prior to the show, uh, Cheryl and I both have uh, de- uh, both degrees and backgrounds in uh, teaching, and uh, we admire you for uh, taking on this challenge. It's huge, and uh, I just want to mention to you that uh, you have uh, our support and everything. anything we can do to help you. Well, I, I appreciate that. It, it gets pretty heated out there. But, I mean, I've been teaching my whole life, and as, as uh, I begin to approach the end of my career, it seems to me higher education is facing more serious problems than it ever has before. At the same time, it's in a condition of denial about the nature of those problems and the kinds of things that need to be done. And I, I regard this as an ethical issue, uh, an ethical issue that bears on the futures of not only our students but our children and grandchildren. We are spending our children's inheritance and not shepherding resources wisely. Well, and at the same time, uh, Mark, uh, for instance, I just saw an article in this morning's um, Houston Chronicle about uh, everyone focusing on the need to increasing the number of college graduates, and yet based on what you're saying in the crisis uh, on campus, that there really aren't the resources to be doing that the way they're currently structured. Well, I think that's correct. Uh, part part of the problem with higher education is that what what we are doing is financially, curricularly, and institutionally unsustainable. If we look at the financial problem, which is what you're referring to in this context, we need to look at it from the side of both students and their parents, as well as institutions. On the side of students and their parents, costs are escalating at an intolerable rate. I can give you some facts and figures on that, but suffice it to say that by nineteen, by 2020, four years of college at a top-tier school will cost $330,000. By 2035, four years of, which is when my younger granddaughter will be ready for college, four years of college at a top-tier school will cost $788,000. It's unsustainable. In June, for the first time ever, Student debt surpassed credit card debt. Wow. Student debt is more toxic than mortgages because you can't walk away from it. That's the side for students and their parents. On the side of institutions, the financial problems are much more severe than they seem willing to admit. I analyze the institutional side of this in terms of assets, liabilities, cost, and income. Assets are down or declining. Endowments are down. Uh, 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 contributions from the state and federal governments are down. Uh, liabilities are up. Many institutions have incurred far more debt than, they, are, than they, they should. They're going to face a liquidity issue. Costs are either fixed or rising, and income cannot be uh, increased enough to, uh, to, to, to complement all of this. In addition to that, colleges and universities are charge, charging roughly two-thirds of what it costs of what it costs to produce their product that is to say even those students who are not on fellowship or scholarship are being subsidized you don't need an mba from harvard to know that that financial model is not sustainable and mark even from our perspective uh, both job search and career development uh, the worst news in many respects is that for this hugely expensive education many of these students can't even get jobs 
That's absolutely right. I we, mean, they are not even preparing these students for today's job market, and we deal in many cases with uh, college uh, career centers, and they're an absolute disaster. They're doing very little or nothing right. to actually help these kids get real yeah. jobs. That's absolutely correct. Uh, and there's a fine line here. I mean, um, I, I've, I've taught a liberal arts, uh, you know, top, well, the, the, liber, the number one liberal arts college in the country, for, uh, according to various ratings, although ratings is a problem that maybe we can talk about, as well as an Ivy League school. But even for the students from these institutions, the job situation is, is terrible. And part of that is, as you suggest, that we're not preparing them adequately. To prepare them adequately for the world in which we live, we do not have to turn all education into vocational education. But you have to, you have to understand a certain kind of utility for even the liberal arts. I happen to believe that it's never been more important to, for students to study the liberal arts, history, religion, philosophy, um, different languages, than in a global environment. We need people to understand other cultures. But to do this, one has to do it in a way that is sensitive to the world in which these young people are going to live and work, and we're not doing that adequately. And you look at public schools, and many times, even in the uh, grammar schools, junior highs and high schools, they're taking out these critical subjects that are so critical to the future of these kids, and it just seems uh, like it's all heading, in many respects, in the wrong direction. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, a, a lot more attention has been devoted, obviously, in recent years to K through 12, which needs a lot of attention. There's no doubt about that. Many people believe, and not incorrectly, that American higher education is the envy of the world. It has been. People will not admit the nature of the problems that we now face. And in a global economy, believe me, there is going to be increased global competition for the U.S. education market. We can no longer assume that we're going to have... Uh, an advantage in, in that in that kind of market. Well, but, in fact, uh, Mark, in the article that I mentioned, uh, it indicates that the U.S. is now tenth, correct, in the in the world, and right. that um, you know there are some countries that have far more uh, um, graduates in their population mm-hmm. percentage-wise mm-hmm. than the U.S. So that's that's pretty. Yes, and as we speak, um, particular institutions in China and India are developing plans to enter the U.S. higher education market. Part of the problem within the university, and part of the reason I get a lot of the heat I do, is that many academics resist thinking about higher education as a business. It's a multi-billion, if not trillion-dollar business, and we, we have to find ways to finance that. In the course of history, there have been basically three patronage systems, church, state, and private. And all of those are breaking down. If we look at what's happening in California at this very moment, they are dismantling what was perhaps the, be- the, 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 the best u- public university system in, in the world because of, because of financial problems. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the cost of education in the, public, in the public sector is also rising because of these, of these financial problems. And because, because the cost to the student of the, of, of the education at a public institution is less than at a private, does not mean that the cost of educating that student at that institution is less. It's just that the student isn't paying all that money. It's being paid by the state. You should also, it's also important to note that as colleges and universities face increasing financial pressure, at the same time that there's more cost, 
the, the resources available for financial aid are drying up. It creates a catastrophic situation. Yes, indeed. Well, you have uh, we have a bubble here that's uh, really um, about to burst if it hasn't already started to burst, and we've seen that go, uh, ripple through so many of our industries, real estate, the dot-com bomb we saw a few years ago, and investments in banking and auto. So it's something that we will be forced to address, hopefully not for the reason you just mentioned, Mark, that uh, the competition globally uh, comes in and, you know, under kind of takes things over. Well, we're going to take a little break here, but when we get back, we're going to explore more about the bold plan for reforming higher education. So stay tuned. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you dissatisfied with your current job or not earning what you need or deserve? If you're looking for a better job with better pay to enjoy a better life, go to betterjobbetterlife.com and get our seven free videos that will jumpstart your future starting today. We'll teach you how to create a cycle of success with the right mindset and plan of action. Get the interview you want with a world-class resume. Make your references work for you and beat the competition. Network your way into the hidden job market for better jobs and faster placement. Research more effectively. The key to more job leads, stronger interviews, and higher pay. Turn your interview into an offer-winning performance. Get the money now by negotiating from strength. Thousands have successfully used our proven techniques to make their dream job or career a reality. So grab our seven free videos that will transform your career. Go to BetterJobBetterLife.com. Can you imagine a technology that takes human consciousness to the next level? One that reveals a new understanding of what is valuable and possible in the abundant support of life? The truth is, we already have that technology. We simply need to awaken to it and become the value it creates. For more about this, please tune in to Awakening Value, Shamanic Technologies of Consciousness and Success with host Marty Spiegelman. Awakening Value is live every Thursday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. Go inside the inner workings of the entertainment industry to find out what's next in television, film, and on the web. Listen for Next Stop Hollywood, hosted by entertainment insiders and pop culture junkies Brad Roth and Mark Feldstein. You'll find out how your favorite TV shows and movies are created and marketed from the conventional to the creative. This fast-moving industry has much more behind the scenes than what you see. No matter how big the screen, Next Stop Hollywood airs live Tuesdays at 4 p.m. Left Coast, 7 p.m. Right Coast on Voice America Variety. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Listening to Total Career Success with Ken and Cheryl Dawson. Do you have a question or comment for the hosts about today's show? Please send an email to TCS on air at TCSWorldwide.com. Now, back to the program. Welcome back. Ken and Cheryl here with Mark Taylor, and we're talking about a bold plan for reforming higher education. And you mentioned, uh, Mark, that there are just uh, several different types of institutions. 
But in spe- specifically, there's quite a dichotomy between the public and the private institutions in terms of the faculty and the cost of education. What's behind this? What's driving that vast difference? Yes, there's a vast difference, and, it's, and, and, and the gap is getting greater. We hear a great deal of talk in, uh, in the media today about the, the growing gap between the wealthy and the not-so-wealthy that, that has come with this whole financial economy and Wall Street and everything. There is a significant gap between the, the haves and the have-nots in the world of education. It's very important to understand the complexity and the diversity of, of post-secondary education in the United States. What people don't realize is that what we tend to think of as the traditional college student is 18 to 20-year-old is a very small portion of the overall, of the overall population of post-secondary education. In fact, the percentage of students between 18 and 20 years old is somewhere between 15 and 18%. That means that roughly 80% of people in post-secondary education are what we call non-traditional they're people, they're people older. They're people in and out of school. They have different needs. The community colleges are very important. Um, the community colleges are every bit as important for the young people, for the people in them, as the Ivy Leagues are for the students in, in those schools. The problem is that the inequitable distribution of wealth, or of capital, as we say, which is both financial and intellectual and cultural, creates this huge divide. I think there needs to be a more equitable distribution of these resources that will enable some of these um, schools where students are crowded into classrooms or can't get into the courses they want to have higher to have the education they need at Columbia and Williams, the two schools where I know, a, a professor teaching a full load at Williams is in the classroom, and there's more to teaching than being in the classroom. But after you've been doing it for a few years, not a lot. A person teaching a full load is in the classroom 120 hours a year. At Columbia, 140 hours a year. When my daughter was a corporate lawyer here in New York City, she billed 90 hours a week often. At these other schools, on the other hand, many of those faculty members are teaching nine or ten courses a year with eight or nine preparations, 300 students, and and no TAs. So there's a great, great gap between them, and we have to begin to find ways. And part of that's resources, to be sure. We have to find, begin to find ways to, to, to approach this problem as a systematic and structural problem. You can't solve this problem by looking at every institution on their own. You have to look at the higher education system and all its complexity and diversity and understand the structural aspect of this institutionally, curricularly, and financially. And, Mark, you add to this the uh, latest academic scandal relative to the for-profit schools, and that just compounds the problem even more. Your thoughts on that? This is a very, very important issue. Um, I saw this issue coming 15 years ago. In 1992, I did a course using teleconferencing with Helsinki. It was the first time that had ever been done. Out of that course, I started webcasting my classes in 1994 and 95. The college, Williams, did not want to support that, and as a result of that, I hooked up with a New York investment banker by the name of Herbert Allen, and we founded a company in 1998 called Global Education Network, the purpose of which was to make high-quality online education available to all people of all ages across the world at a reasonable 
price. We failed, and we failed because of the resistance of faculty members to the operation. I knew that this space was going to be very, very important, and I wanted educators involved with shaping that space from the beginning. They weren't. And what has happened has been that for-profit, I'm not against for-profit. Indeed, I think there must be alliance between colleges and universities and for-profits. But some of what's been going on with the for-profits is unconscionable. They have been, you have a situation with the for-profits exactly analogous to what was going on with the mortgage, subprime mortgage rate. Exactly. They, they, what the subprime mortgage people did was they went after the people least able to afford the mortgages, mm-hmm. knowing they were going to default, securitized the mortgages, sold them off. What these for-profits are doing are going after the people least able to pay back their loans, knowing the loans are, are going to be backed by the federal government. Absolutely. So, so the default rate on student loans in the for-profits is about 40 41%, which oh. is extremely high. So the taxpayers are, in effect, footing the bill for these for-profits. Furthermore, the education that they get isn't, isn't, isn't any good. Absolutely. There is the, there, you cannot solve the problem of higher education without a, a significant and a, and a sophisticated technological component. But it has to be done responsibly, both financially and educationally. Well, Mark, before our listeners jump off the building, uh, <laughs> let's talk a little bit about uh, the good news. There has to be some good news in this bleak scenario. Share with our listeners some of the good news. The good news is that, that I mean, as is always the case, it seems to me, perilous situations provide opportunities mm-hmm. for those with the imagination to 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 take advantage of it. Um, there, there are there are. Ex- extraordinary opportunities here if people are willing to think outside the box. The problem is that we live in a world that is changing at warp speed, that is extraordinarily complex, and higher education is a rigid structure that cannot change and will not change. There have to be, there have to be institutional changes that will allow for these, in, for, for these institutions to evolve. They have to they have to evolve in ways that are able to adapt to these new areas. Look, there is all kinds of interesting work being done if we can open up lines of communication. One of the problems with higher education is that it is a world of silos and walls, while the world in which we live is a world of webs and networks. We have to break down those walls by restructuring the curriculum in ways that allow for communication between and among different kinds of disciplines and different kinds of, of traditions. I think we should move toward the minimization or elimination of departments as they've been known in the past and the institution of cross-disciplinary and cross-cultural uh, programs that have some kind of a practical orientation built into them as well as the theoretical or- orientation. Well, Marcus, we mentioned earlier, uh, you know, as former academicians, uh, we saw that firsthand. I mean, academicians live in an academic bubble, uh, almost like they're on an alien planet, and they don't even exist, and they consider business something that's uh, totally uh, alien to them and will never have anything to do with them, and yet that's what they are preparing their students for, a business environment. Correct. And not only that, but the only way in which those academics can live in that environment is if the very people they loathe contribute to the institutions. Exactly. Right. So they live off the wealth and the generosity of the very people that they attack. Uh, 
there's another issue that's related to this, and that is the fragmentation of knowledge that leads to uh, the specialization of knowledge that leads to the fragmentation of the universities. Jobs in most areas for graduate students, um, there are exceptions, but in most areas, jobs dried up in 1970. There have not been significant jobs for people in most areas, arts, humanities, soft social sciences, some of the sciences, for 40 years. Students have continued, but, but institutions have not cut back on their graduate programs because they need graduate students for TAs and in, and in the laboratories. Exactly. As the job market dried up, and I know because I graduated from college in 1968, by 1970 there were no jobs. 1972, the year that I looked for a job, in modern Western religion was about as broad as it can get. There were three jobs in the nation in that area, and that's been more or less the way it is ever since. Um, Graduate education, as it now functions, is a process of cloning. It is designed to produce people to do what their teachers do, but there have been no jobs for 40 years to do that. You know, there's always the exception, and again, there are areas where... There are jobs, but within within the academy, it's it, they're they're very very few. As the jobs dried up, the demands for publication increased, and places required publication that never before did. And prestige is measured by publication, not by teaching. Teaching is nowhere more disdained than at a research university. Absolutely, um, and and so you have an imbalance between. Research and teaching at a lot of these places. Again, this is there's another whole world here, as I just mentioned, where where many people work, dedicated teachers out there don't have time to read a book, let alone write a book, given their teaching loads. Yeah. But it's a trickle down effect in terms of prestige. The 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 preoccupation with ranking in this country, I think, is deleterious, is deleterious to education. Everybody is competing, and the measure they use. Is usually publication. Yeah, yeah. And well, yeah, Mark. What I'm wondering is, you, you mentioned about the fragmentation and overspecialization. How would you change to have a more flexible, adaptable, and practical uh, curricula? There's several things that need to be done. Uh, we have uh, just one minute, so we'll just a short answer, and we can pick. Um, up. Let's come back to this. Where I would begin would be to create a more flexible workforce by abolishing tenure and imposing mandatory retirement at 70, but that's only the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, we have to restructure the curriculum uh, in, in, in ways that I think can be done effectively, uh, but it's a little bit complicated, so m- maybe we can return to this. Uh, Let's do that. Let's back. take a little break here, and when we get back, we'll talk about some of the ways that uh, education can be restructured for everyone's benefit, for financially, but also for individuals to be more marketable once they get into the job market. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you dissatisfied with your current job or not earning what you need or deserve? If you're looking for a better job with better pay to enjoy a better life, go to 
betterjobbetterlife.com and get our seven free videos that will jumpstart your future starting today. We'll teach you how to create a cycle of success with the right mindset and plan of action. Get the interview you want with a world-class resume. Make your references work for you and beat the competition. Network your way into the hidden job market for better jobs and faster placement. Research more effectively. The key to more job leads, stronger interviews, and higher pay. Turn your interview into an offer-winning performance. Get the money now by negotiating from strength. Thousands have successfully used our proven techniques to make their dream job or career a reality. So grab our seven free videos that will transform your career. Go to BetterJobBetterLife.com. If you hear a dog barking or an angel singing, then you know that you are listening to Waking Up in America. Heard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific Time, Valerie Kirkard and all of her friends will bring you powerful and humorous discussions that raise thoughts and give you insight on how to live your life to its fullest potential. Adventure is always a must on Waking Up in America with Valerie Kirkard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com you are listening to total career success with ken and cheryl dawson do you have a question or comment for the host about today's show please send an email to tcs on air at tcsworldwide.com now back to the program Welcome back. Ken and Cheryl here with Mark Taylor, and we're discussing a very important uh, subject for everyone who is concerned about the future of education and also our economy. And when we um, stopped at the break, Mark, you were just beginning to delve in some of the really uh, important um, strategies that need to be taken. One of them, of course, um, is not favored at all with your, your colleagues. <laughs> and some others that probably need a lot more restructuring in how uh, colleges and universities think about themselves. That's right. I mean, the the uh, I mean, the issue that draws the most heat in um, academic circles is the issue of tenure. Uh, the justification usually given for tenure is academic freedom. That is, in my judgment, a specious argument. If you look at the actual statement. Uh, given in 1940 by the American Association of University Professors, which is the norm, which is taken as normative, they give two reasons for tenure. One is academic freedom, and the other is economic. However, they proceed to argue that all people at the universe, at, in the university, should have academic freedom, which means that ta- non-tenured as well as tenured people should. Which means that tenure is not, that academic freedom is not contingent upon tenure. In addition to that, for the non-tenured person. Academic tenure, tenure creates, does not create academic freedom, but the opposite. They're not free to express their views because of their quest for academic freedom. In addition, in addition to, I, I always say that tenure poses a liquidity problem that is both financial and intellectual. Intellectually, in a world that is changing as fast as ours is changing, there's no way that you can know no matter how well a person does what he or she does, there's no way that you can know that that area of inquiry is going to be important in 10 years, let alone in 35 years. Financially, the institute, the, if, if, you take a, if you take a more or less minimal case of uh, salary and benefits for an average associate professor, 
and you try to calculate what the, what the institutional financial commitment, what, what financial commitment that institution makes over the course of that person's career, figuring five years at associate, 30 years at full, since people tend not to retire. The answer is, and no bells and whistles, and they're often bells and whistles. At a private institution, it's roughly $14 million. At a, private in, at a public institution, about 10 or 11. That's a lot of money. So it creates this kind of liquidity uh, problem. What I think you need to do is to move to a system of seven-year renewable contracts, uh, which seems to me to be generous um, and uh, 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 that allows for review. Currently, there's no carrot and there's no stick, so it's very hard to get change. All right, that then relates directly to the curricular issue. You're not going to get rid of departmental divisions as they now exist in my lifetime. As an intermediate step, what you need to do, it seems to me, what I recommend in the book is the creation of a new division in addition to the uh, arts and humanities, the natural, social sciences and natural sciences, a new division that is dedicated to cross-disciplinary and cross-cultural modes of, of interpretation and analysis that are problem-oriented. And these, these areas should be, should, should be established also for seven years. They should have a sunset clause, at the end of which they are reviewed and either ended, changed, or renewed. All faculty and all, gradu- all graduate students, all undergraduate students, should be required to participate, to, to participate in these zones, I call them zones of inquiry. We've begun to do this in the religion department at Columbia. And hiring, promotion, and renewal should be contingent upon participation and performance in this area as well as an area of specialization. In that way, you begin to build in a certain kind of flexibility adapt- and adaptability to new areas. Uh, and you begin. My wager is that the best and the brightest students are going to find the work going on in those areas the most engaging. Mark, what can our listeners do to help? Uh, that's obviously one of the big questions. Uh, so many of our uh, parents and the public at large in America is, is in, in many respects, uh, you know, sick of uh, our academic uh, uh, standards that don't exist and so many things we need to do. And students, share with our listeners, students as well. Well, students as well. But share with our listeners what we can do as a team. What can our listeners and the public at large do to help you get to where you need to be? It's a difficult question. Uh, And part of the reason that it's difficult is that, as we all know, we live in an extraordinarily polarized period uh, politically. The problem cannot be solved simply by the government. It can't be solved simply by the the, the colleges and universities. There has, in my judgment, there has to be we have to move from a situation of competition to a situation of, of, of cooperation. There has to be cooperation between and among educational institutions. There has to be increasing cooperation. There's already a lot going on. It has to continue with various aspects of the government. And there has to be cooperation with the for-profit sector in a variety of ways. I think that part of what, what parents and, I mean, what many academics don't understand is that the only reason they're in business is because of the students. Mm-hmm. Um, the students and, and their families have to, have to demand a different kind of education. Uh, now, part of the problem, 
Uh, I mean, I have a colleague here at Columbia who has a piece in in the New Yorker this week arguing that I'm completely wrong, that there's no problem. He's a dean of the journalism school, that there's no problem with higher education because he has more applicants than he knows what to do with. Well, the fact of the matter is that I know that he's out pounding the pavement every day to get students to come to his graduate program and pay for the master's. And they're paying however much they're paying. And the question of whether they will get a job in the other end is, is, is up, up for grabs. So the, the problem is that during the tough economic times, people want to get education as a way of getting a leg up on this. Yeah. But the question is whether getting that education, one, is going to enable them to do what they're going to do any better, and two, whether they're going to get payback on their investment. There are, there's an article in the Chronicle of Higher Education today that claims, and the latest data they have, was that in 2007, the argument was, the argument there is always college pays. Well, that is true. And their argument is that in 2007, they, the report says that college graduates earn up to $800,000 more over the course of their career than non-college graduates. Two questions. One, it's not clear whether college made the difference or whether the kind of person who goes to college mm-hmm. <laughs> made the difference. And there's no way you can test that. I think education is a good thing. But the second thing is, if the numbers that I project for cost of education are right, and you're, and you're paying a third of $300,000 a year in 10 years or $500,000 in a few years, $800,000 over the course of your life isn't, isn't all that much. And even so, if you consider uh, inflation, it's, it's not going to... Correct. You know. um, so, so, part, I mean, so part of it is... Uh, I mean, one of the ways in which colleges and universities have gotten in the financial mess that they're in is that during the 90s and first decade of the 21st century, many of them went on a building spree. One of the paradoxes is that as, as students and their families pay more for college, they demand more for their dollar. They want more services. Yeah. They, want, they want nicer dorms. So a lot of the building was building four-star, five-star dorms, building recreational athletic facilities and this, that, and the other thing, and they take on debt to do that. Uh, uh, so, I mean, it's a vicious, it's a vicious circle in that, in that way. So that the, you know, the co- and as they do that, the costs keep, keep going up. So I think, that, um, I think that part of what they have to do is, it, I mean, this has, you asked why I wrote the book. I wrote the book to try to create a national dialogue on this problem. I'm going to be gone before this, before this gets resolved. But it's an, as I said, it's an ethical issue. And it needs to be confronted because my, children, my grandchildren and your children, grandchildren, other students are going to face this problem. And on a national level, we, you already alluded to this, Cheryl. Our competitiveness is going down when we're number 10 or whatever it is on this Listen, I mean, this is, this is an issue of, of equity. You cannot have a vibrant democracy and an economy if you don't have an educated um, population. And, yes, higher education has been in good shape, but these are serious problems, and they have to be addressed in creative ways. 
Give us an example. I mean, you mentioned one earlier that you you did way back in the 90s of having a, um, you know, partnering arrangement and even on a global scale. Uh, give us a couple of examples of how people can envision that happening. All right. So... Um, we have just a minute here. Right. So imagine, imagine that uh, a particular institution does... Uh, partners with schools that are not just local, but let's say that we have a department of religion that forms a collaboration with a school in China, in Japan, and in Finland using teleconferencing. So that we, in other words, you form a consortium um, in, in which you cooperate with these others. And you can do this Using, I mean, online education isn't simply computer stuff. You can do this with telepresence now, uh, with extraordinary effectiveness. I taught when I taught with um, Melbourne, it was like half the seminar table in Helsinki. Half the seminar table is in Williams, and half of it's in Melbourne. Um, and you just expand it that way, and that so that you you again you you create structures of cooperation and collaboration that are not limited by physical proximity because of these uses of technology. Fascinating. Well, we're going to have to take a break here, but when we get back, we'll wrap up some of the key points that Mark has made in his tremendous book, Crisis on Campus. So stay with us. News. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you dissatisfied with your current job or not earning what you need or deserve? If you're looking for a better job with better pay to enjoy a better life, go to BetterJobBetterLife.com and get our seven free videos that will jumpstart your future starting today. We'll teach you how to create a cycle of success with the right mindset and plan of action. Get the interview you want with a world-class resume. Make your references work for you and beat the competition. Network your way into the hidden job market for better jobs and faster placement. Research more effectively. The key to more job leads, stronger interviews, and higher pay. Turn your interview into an offer-winning performance. Get the money now by negotiating from strength. Thousands have successfully used our proven techniques to make their dream job or career a reality. So grab our seven free videos that will transform your career. Go to BetterJobBetterLife.com. Women in business today face many challenges in advancing their careers and reaching their goals. There are corporate executives, entrepreneurs, and business owners that have made their mark in business. Now you can learn their secrets and tips. Listen to Women Mean Business as your host, Bonnie Marcus, explores how to thrive in the business environment, navigate the workplace, and climb the corporate ladder. Listen live every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel and effectively promote yourself today. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really bad all the time the number one internet talk station where your opinion counts voiceamerica.com you are listening to total career success with ken and cheryl dawson 
Do you have a question or comment for the host about today's show? Please send an email to tcsonair at tcsworldwide.com. Now, back to the program. Welcome back. Ken and Cheryl here with Mark Taylor, and we've been discussing some really important issues around the crisis on campus. And, Mark, uh, you've done a tremendous job in sharing some of the uh, insights in your, your little book. Uh, I really recommend it to everyone. But I'd like to uh, take a moment to, to build on the, the network concept, right. uh, especially as it um, relates to the diversity and exchange of ideas and uh, really shifting from that mass production kind of um, right. process in the, in the current structure to more mass uh, customization. Right. Share with us your thoughts on that. So, I mean, one of the one of the things that's interesting when you think, I mean, I I'm a philosopher, so I look at these things sort of philosophically. Um, and there's a philosophical vision behind what I'm talking about here, and that is that we live in a world that is increasingly interconnected. Uh, that connectivity is increasing, and with connectivity increasing, the speed of change increases, uh, and yet. The structure of universities is a structure, as I said before, of, of silos. So you begin asking fundamental questions. And one of the questions I began to ask is, why is every course the same length? Why is every course more or less the same credit? Why is it four years of college? Uh, and I honestly don't know, and haven't, the people I've asked they don't have answers to this. And the answer is it's the way it's always been done. But part of it is, as you suggest, that the model that we've used is mass customization. So, I mean, I'm, the, the mass production. So basically one size um, fits all. Uh, but as we've seen elsewhere, there's a shift that takes place as technology changes. And the new technologies create the possibility for different ways of configuring education. Um, if we begin to ask the question as to whether college should always be four years. I know there are some that call for a move back to three years. I don't think cutting for cutting's sake is necessarily good. But what if we move from a quantitative to a qualitative mode of assessment? That is to say, rather than giving college credit, a college degree on the basis of the number of credits earned or the number of courses taken, one gives it on the basis of competence uh, or, of, or of knowledge. And what if we created a more flexible curricular structure that would allow perhaps students having to be in residence for a certain period of time, but then being able to take courses in other formats, uh, either using telepresence or uh, online education, um, that would allow them to, to put together their own education, elements of their own education on their own. We've seen that in, 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 other, in other areas. In Global Education Network, we sort of discovered without knowing it iTunes before iTunes because we discovered that not everybody wanted to take a whole course. If we have a course in art history or music appreciation, some wanted to take a portion of the course. So what we started doing was modularizing the courses mm -hmm. so that a person could buy, and that's what we're talking about, anything from one class session to a week to two weeks to half a course of the whole semester. So the, the total course was sort of like the the CD and the week of the semester is like one of the tunes you could take. Uh, now, if you begin to imagine many of these courses sort of in the ether, like Google Books, and that they're modularizing and can be accessed and recombined in different ways, 
you can begin to see how a student might be able, with guidance, to put together a course or to put together a series of courses on his, her, his or her own, and that they might be able to take these at a, at a significantly lower cost um, and could move at their own speed. So one student might take two and a half or three years to finish an education, another might take five or six, but they wouldn't have to be in residence that whole time. So again, that the, everywhere we have rigidity and fixity, you want to move toward uh, flexibility and mobility. And that's, you know, that, that would be one area. It doesn't have to be either or. These can be, you know, I think that for a variety of reasons, not the least of which is the changing uh, nature of the, of the, uh, the post-secondary population, I think place-based education is going to play a lower and lower, a, a less and less significant role in the future. Mark, one of the things that we hear all the time is that uh, you know, colleges and universities, in many respects, are not preparing students for the job market. I mean, our focus is oftentimes business, and we see it all day, every day. Uh, you know, we talk to kids all the time, many of whom have graduated, and we're saying, well, what are you going to do with your degree? It beats me. I don't know. I can't get a job, and I'll probably go back to school. And in many respects, it appears to us that, Colleges and universities are driving kids back to get masters and PhDs and graduate schools because that's more revenue, that's more everything. But again, we don't have we only have a few minutes left. Uh, give us some hope. Give us some thoughts about where we're going, how we're going to get there, and uh, what we can do again to help you in this regard. Well, first of all, I want to say that that I, that I think you are correct. When when I I finish my I finished my doctorate at Harvard in five years. And Harvard at that time had a program to get people in and out in five years. The average time to, doc- to degree for doctorates now nationwide is about 10 or 11 years. I, don't have a- I have two doctorates, but I don't have a master's. Many schools, Columbia included, now want them to have a master's before they start the doctoral program. Exactly. And you're correct. They use the master's as a cash cow. Exactly. Uh, and I always tell students, do not go into debt to get your education or do it minimally because you, you'll never get out. You'll never, right. get out, you'll never get, out, get out from under it. Um, I think there are other ways to, to get you. But, and having another degree does not necessarily mean you're going to be better off in the job market. In some instances, you might be. Uh, you know where the degree where the degree you know is professionally oriented or something, but but in many instances, just having another degree doesn't help. Mark, we talk to CEOs all the time who are saying, "Why don't universities and colleges talk to us about what we need? We know what we need in our business. We know what kind of academic backgrounds are need. We're desperately trying to hook up and talk to colleges, and universities about what you need to prepare kids for, so we have jobs for them when they come out." And I don't know the answer to why they don't. I mean, I mean, I mean, this is an uphill struggle from within the academy. Believe me. Uh, and you know, what one needs is a complicated kind of phenomenon. For years, students of mine at Williams would tell me they want to go into investment banking. I didn't have any idea what investment banking was. I have a little bit of an understanding now because of my involvement with Herbert Allen. I used to tell them if they want to be an investment banker, they should major in religion. And they would look at me like I was crazy, but I wasn't. <laughs> What I meant was, to be successful in that area, you have to understand how the world works. And nothing helps you understand how the world works better than religion for understanding this. So there are different ways in which, I mean, that doesn't, yes, you might need to know accounting in this, that, and the other thing, but these other things that you need to know. 
but there are ways in which you can form alliances with the for- I mean, one of the examples that I use in, in, in the book is MIT's Media Lab, which is a, uh, Nicholas Negroponte set it up, and it's funded by various companies, and they have a master's program, but they also have undergraduates who, who work there to create new products and the like, um, that, uh, the, and, and in collaboration with different industries, uh, that kind of thing could be done in in, in other areas uh, as well. One of the things that people don't realize is the extent to which business is involved with colleges and universities in terms of licensing, patenting, and technology transfer. Yes, and, and the, I think that's an important area to, in the uh, building to address that sitting, financial. In the building where I am sitting on the top floor is is the technology transfer office. From 2004 to 2007, Columbia had roughly $400 million of income from technology transfer. In 2007, the, la- the last year for which I was able to find data, the total income from, the- from technology transfer was $128 million, which was more than the whole arts and sciences budget. So part of what's happening in this, what's most endangered in this, are the arts, uh, the arts and humanities. I'm sorry, arts and humanities. Um, and... We will be a poorer nation if we don't find ways to continue to teach and support the arts and humanities because we need people in government, in public and private sector, who have an understanding of the broader culture as well as some of these other skills. That's what I mean. You, you, the, these interdisciplinary programs have to have a problem orientation that has some kind of practical interest or, or dimension to it. Uh, well, I, th- I think, too, your, your point of uh, liberal arts and history and culture uh, being so, so important for developing critical skills. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and for understanding critically, which is not to say negatively, the various kinds of media and technologies that we're deploying. I mean, they, we see it every day. There is the capacity for great creative the use of those, but they're also problematic sides, and we need to be aware of both and understand both of those sides, it seems to me. Again, in a globalized world, everybody's a neighbor, and we'd better understand these other cultures um, in terms of language, history, religion, all that kind of thing. The more we understand, the better off we're going to be. What I was trying to do with, with the Helsinki course 20 years ago was to create a global classroom in which anybody anywhere around the world could sit down around that table and talk about things that matter. I happen to believe that the world would be a lot better off if we did that and that money would go for that, that money could go for that in a way that, that would be far more useful than a lot of the military. We, yes, we need that military, but to create a world, we have to understand we live in a global society. We have to create global education networks that bring together people to consider these problems, not only within our own country, but between and, across, between and among other countries across the world. Well, that is a tremendous note to end on. Mark, thank you again for being with us. Tell our, uh, everyone how they can get a hold of your book. Um, it's uh, uh, published by CANOP, Crisis on Campus, a bold plan for reforming our colleges and universities, and you get it at local bookstores, or it's readily available at a reasonable price on Amazon.com. Well, thank you again, and uh, just a reminder, uh, for those who have not uh, accessed our seven free videos, go to www.betterjobbetterlife.com 
and we'll have another great show for you next week. Mark, Thanks again. Uh, great to have you with us. Okay, uh, thanks a lot. Good, keep up the good fight, buddy. Okay, really appreciate it. Take care. Okay, Bye. take care. Bye. Thanks again for joining us this week on Total Career Success with Ken and Cheryl Dawson. Remember to join us again next Monday at noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific, here on the Voice America Variety Channel. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff and management.